Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to risk, business continuity, COVID, well-being, disaster planning, emergency management, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community plan for, prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. One other announcement, I will be speaking at the Continuity Insights Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, April 25th to 27th. So hopefully we'll see some of you there. Feel free, come up and say hi, and maybe we'll get you on the show. I've said for quite a while that I would be speaking at uh, various conference you know, over, over time, and in the summer, there was the BCI Horizons Conference, and I said, you know, it would be nice if we could get some of those speakers to maybe come on the show and talk about their topic or something else that uh, excites them, and today is one of those days. Speaking on the topic of managing external risks, risks, I'd like to welcome to the show Tony Thornton. Tony, welcome. Hey, Alex, and thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and Tony was one of those people who reached out you know, to be on the show. See, so I, if you reach out, I really do try to get you on here. You know, he may regret it, but he's here. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Till I Tony, I've, I've obviously read your bio and we've talked a little bit uh, through email and such, but could you take a minute or two and tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got into what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, Alex, it's fair to say that I've had something of a varied career. Um, an atypical one, if you will. Uh, it started off. It started off as a, 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 as um, an, an officer in the, in the British Army. Where I spent I spent four years, and during that time, actually, I found that I had a particular a particular strength in, in training, in in um, in making training different, making training realistic, making it interesting. And so, I don't think that it was any surprise that the next natural step after I'd left. Uh, the army was to go into a career in in teaching. It wasn't. It, was, it actually wasn't that straightforward. It wasn't a smooth move from the military into into teaching. You know, I spent I spent time in many other jobs, getting lots of other experience. Like I was once an, an office angel, uh, doing um, filing in an underground um, an underground basement of, of a warehouse. I was a labourer on a on, on a building site in the Isle of Dogs. I was a a gardener and a baker and a Meals on Wheels driver and all sorts of other things before ending up um, in, in teaching. Um, and one of the things I enjoyed most about teaching actually was that I was able to adapt the methods of instruction which I'd learned in the military to the civilian classroom with unexpected and, and, and great success actually. Um, I just a very quick anecdote if I may, just to illustrate that point. 
I had a, quite a difficult class to deal with in the East End of London as a teacher. And I was trying to take the, the register in the morning. It was just impossible. I was getting bombarded with things and literally getting bombarded with things and people shouting out other people's names. It was hopeless. So having got to the edge of my patience, I, I marched them all out into the rainy playground, sized them all off, put them on parade, and we did a military-style <laughs> roll call in, instead of taking the classroom register. And the kids absolutely loved it. They absolutely loved it. And in fact, that started off a thing then whereby at playtimes and lunchtimes, they used to come in to get some more lessons in drill and things like this. So it's amazing how you can take a skill from one environment and use it in a, in, in a different one to great success. So um, after about 12 years in teaching, though, my, uh, um, my career took a bit of a turn and I went into the world of private security and uh, facilitating or helping business, helping organisations and companies to do business in extremely difficult um, surrounding. So I spent the next few years um, helping companies in countries like um, um, Iraq and then and Jordan and Pakistan and Nigeria um, and so on. And I think actually, on a, you know, it was at that time, it was at that time that I realised the importance of getting risk management right and the importance of using clear language um, and the importance of being able to make decisions with no time in very difficult uh, circumstances, and that really that really set me up, I think, for my 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 next role, which was that of as global head of security for a, a rather large company that had its headquarters in Copenhagen. So when you you know when you get a call and you're middle of the Niger Delta and somebody offers you a job in Copenhagen, it, it's 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 quite an easy decision to make, you know. So I went there as, as global head of security, and since then I have I have been um, advising businesses and trying to help them get their risk management processes and their their business continuity programs um, to do a number of things to get them to take it seriously um, and to implement um, the, the program and 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 to practice it. And that's what I've been doing really for the last the last fifteen or so years. And um, and 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 here I am now, Alex, talking to you. Hey, you made it to, you know, the, the, the best <laughs> part of the world, right? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. The pinnacle, the pinnacle. Uh, you touched on some of the things we're going to talk about today, <clears throat> actually. You even said the word jargon. And that's one of the things, that's the first thing we're going to talk about today. So um, <clears throat> our business jargon, it's changing, it's confusing sometimes. Um, can you explain why? It changes so much, and you know why there's confusion around it sometimes. Yeah, I, I, this uh, is a is a point very very close to my heart, Alex. Actually, so I'm glad you asked it. Um, give me a chance to try and explain explain what I feel has gone wrong, and it has gone wrong. Um, modern business jargon, uh, or the use of modern business jargon, introduces more risks. It introduces you know the possibility of people misinterpreting key instructions key advice they misinterpret that it, it opens up the risk you know the, the risk of people not understanding because they're from a different country and they don't speak the language in their mother tongue there's so many different there's so many different um problems with people not using clarity of language and i think and I, you know people will probably shout me down for this but it's, it's my point of view in the years that i've spent on both sides of the consulting um, fence and i think consultancies have got a lot to answer for here um if you're trying to implement something you know 
let's say a risk management um, framework or you're trying to organize some business continuity exercise or whatever it may be you've got a lot of consultancies out there that all offer all offer pretty pretty standard stuff they're all offering the same thing it's just wrapped up differently but when the consultants come in they 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 have to have that little added extra to distinguish themselves from the other consultancies to say look this isn't the same as everybody else's this is different and one of the tools they use to do that is that they paint it with fancy with fancy language and they start introducing words and phrases that never should have been introduced into that context at all. And they do that because they delude themselves into thinking that they're coming across as highly intelligent. Now, the problem is, the problem is that a lot of the customers are duped by this and they're afraid for fear of ridicule to actually say that they don't understand what the language uh, is being used is all about. Could they please rephrase? So they then, they then decide to use the same tool and adopt that language internally to their own peers. And so the thing spirals out of control and we end up with an emperor, an emperor's clothes um, scenario where everybody knows it's absolutely ridiculous, but nobody's going to speak up and say so. So we, they, they start, the kind of phrases that I'm talking about are, I mean, let's see if I can think of an example off, off the top of my head. If, if, for example, I said to you, Alex, I think what we should do is take the top three risks and then let's get in touch with our strategy department and let's study and examine these risks a little bit further i think that would be a pretty clear message to you that we're going to take the top three risks we're going to go to our strategy people and we're going to discuss them and examine them further but if i said to you alex um, let's size off the the big ticket numbers out of out out, out of this list and then let's let's uh, reach out to our uh, strategic stakeholders so that we can double click on a few of these items and take a deep dive down into them it's just not quite so clear if you're telling that to somebody who doesn't have english as their foreign language taking a deep dive and double clicking on something is just taking things a bit too far um i think there's, there's another one which irritates me intensely which is where when you're trying to talk about um quick wins or things that you can achieve relatively easily you know you don't want to talk about getting in a huddle and peeling back the onion so that you can see where the low-hanging fruit is so that you can harvest all that in why don't you know why don't you just why don't you just say what you mean and 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 that's another one that irritates me intensely the use of the word leverage now is cropped into consultancy speak you know rather than use what we've got you no longer use what you've got you leverage upon your assets that's what you do you don't use what you but and, and this is the kind of thing but i you know i, I in a sense I'm, I'm i'm ridiculing it i don't mean to ridicule it but what i do mean to do is to emphasize the point that if you are dealing with something as important as risk management, where um, the business objectives are at stake, if you're dealing with something as important in business continuity management, which aims to minimize any disruption to your processes, and if you're if you're talking about events that could have catastrophic consequences, such as those that you know we faced in more of the hostile areas, and if in this multi-global, uh, sorry, in this global business society where we've got multiple workforces, all from different nationalities now that do not have English as their first language, the imperative is to work on being clear with our language and not being clever with our language mm -hmm. because it's self-defeating. It's interesting that you brought this point up because uh, earlier this week, 
I was attending a conference. Um, it's a virtual conference based out of Toronto, the Continuity Resilience Today conference. And they had emergency management, business continuity managers, or business continuity sides of uh, two stream, major streams. And a lot of us had the same terms, but we had different meanings attached to them. So sometimes we couldn't really, uh, well, they were, so, especially people that hadn't been around for a long time, couldn't really understand, well, what does that mean to you? Well, it means this, but that's not what it means to me. So, you know, people were on different pages. And actually at the same conference three or four years ago, I was on a, a panel discussion at the end where um, the person beside me, uh, the question was, what is uh, one of the things that drives you crazy, basically about you know, business continuity, let's say. And she banged on the table and she said, terminology. She goes, everybody uses different terms it's different meanings, different organizations and, and standards. And then I spoke, it was my turn to talk and the head of the Business Continuity Institute Canada was there, the head of the Disaster Recovery Institute Canada was there and a couple of other heads of different organizations were there. And I said, well, maybe you guys should get together and fix this problem. And they were all sitting in the front and the looks I got, I'll say we're not that favorable, but all the people behind them were nodding their heads saying, yeah, that would be nice if we had standards set of de uh, definitions, terminology that we all understood. So it, it's interesting to hear you speak, you know, in security and risk that the same thing occurs there too. Exactly. And I think, I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest examples of that, Alex, actually, is um, that the, the, the concept of inherent risk and inherent risk means something to some people, but something completely different to others. And it's essential that that is got right. I, 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 was, I saw somebody get torn apart at a board meeting once, and actually they were doing exactly the right thing. To them, an inherent risk was something, as it was, was a risk that had been assessed in the absence of any controls, no controls uh, whatsoever in place. But there was a new stakeholder involved in the board to them, Oddly enough, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong, it's, as it's illustrating your point, it's different definitions of the same terms. To them, an inherent risk is the risk as it is today, and they, they argued at the point that they call it that because they've sort of inherited that risk. You know, it's, it's inherited for all the work that's done before. Now they're in charge, they've inherited it. So it's their inherent risk. You know, that was their description of it, and that was their company's understanding of it. It wasn't our company's um, understanding of it. So you've got people at board levels disagreeing um uh entirely on what on what your in, inherent and your residual risks are so i completely completely um uh, uh support your 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 um your little talk there and the people in that front row um looking at you strangely really do need to wake up because this this problem of language is a real one you've got to get your language right and and then of course once you've got your your use of words right at that basic level then you can apply that to your specialism so i mean one of the big things for me um again close to my heart uh, is is the articulation of risk you know that that risk title as opposed to the risk description if you get that right you know everything else will fall into place you get that wrong and you open up a can of worms everything becomes ambiguous and nothing's really clear anymore so yeah your people that are looking at looking at you strangely they really do need to wake up because it's a fundamental thing that we're able to communicate properly especially in the areas of risk and bcm you got me thinking of something else too because you mentioned uh, a lot of times english is not their first language 
a person's first language. Well, if you've got someone who's gone through the, the uh, training or the education to learn English, then they have specific definitions you know, that they've learned. You know, continuity means this, emergency means that, risk means you know, something else. You know. And then if we come in, you know, in the risk industry, security industry or security or some guiding group, you know, or consultancy, whatever, and come in with our own special definitions, then we're creating some of our own problems with communication and, you know, uh, trying to mitigate and resolve issues because we've changed our understandings and definitions to people that have taken the time to actually learn the real definitions. We're creating yeah. our own problem. You, you, you are, and in doing that, you're isolating people, people who have a very, very valuable input and years of experience, um, and then you're completely cutting them out of the conversation because you're, 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 um, you're, you're disadvantaging them unfairly um, uh, because of what you're doing with the language. Uh, but again, your, your, your point, Alex, raises another, an, 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 another question on, on, on the issue of language, and as it, you know, countries teach language in a certain way and they attach definitions in a certain way uh, and it's, it's important that if we are going to that country we understand what language they're using what definitions they're using my 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 you know the question that springs to mind is who who is in charge of all this so that the whole thing is calibrated from country to country to country to country and from culture to culture to culture so for example i mean over in the middle east you know i'm sure nobody will be offended but uh, very often um um, the men refer to, you know, expat men, other men, they refer to them as dear all the time. But in the UK, if a man refers to another man as dear, it, it's, it doesn't have the same, you know, it would, it would, be, it would be perceived to be um, not abnormal, but certainly not usual. But over, over in, in, the, in the Middle East, men refer to other men as dear, it's perfectly normal. You know, it's a silly, it's a silly example, but the point remains the same. We need to calibrate um, our language so that when we come, you know, similarly, you know, I, ICS is this crisis management, you know, the command system, whereby people can come from all over the world and take a chair on a crisis management committee and carry out a role. And the reason they're able to do that is because ICS is standardised across all the different countries and all the different crisis management systems. Similarly, in the military, if you look at the American Army or the American Marines, if you look at the format of how they give orders, it's, 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 it's almost exactly the same as how the British Army issue orders and all the European armies issue orders. And there's a reason for that. And that is because when we all come together and somebody has to issue orders to a multinational force, everybody exactly understands what's coming next and what it means. So we do need to get our language straight. Yeah, that would be nice. Have the same terminology, understandings, so that would be nice. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we are talking with Tony Thornton on the topic of managing external risks, and we'll be right back. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Tony Thornton on the topic of managing external risks. Tony, in your presentation at BCI Horizons, you talked about IPEC risks. What does IPEC stand for? IPEC, you won't find, you won't find IPEC in any uh, textbooks or any papers, Alex. I invented that um, acronym, IPEC. Um, and I invented it because I felt there was a need to categorize a certain kind of risk uh, so that we can deal with it differently than we traditionally do with other sort of strategic, operational, financial compliance type risks. And, and the reason I chose the reason I chose the word IPEC was, was obviously, firstly, uh, because the initials I, P, E and C uh, they are the, the common characteristics of these risks, which I'll mention in a moment. But also, I spent most of my time um, in risk management within the oil and gas industry. And by calling them IPEC, that sort of resonates with OPEC. <laughs> and I thought that that might sort of, people might remember it, might be a way of remembering it a little, little more easily. IPEC, IPEC um, stands, stands for um, risks which, over which we have no influence, uh, risks which are um, perpetual um, risks, um, which are external to our environment and risks which if they are realized will have catastrophic consequences. So when we say uh, we have no um, influence over them, let's deal with the I, the I first. Um, obviously it's tied up with the E because they're external, the amount of influence we have over them is limited, but what we don't have over them and when we talk about IPEC risk is influence over uh, their likelihood. We have no influence over them at all. Let me let me illustrate that if I if, if I if I can. Um, if we take a, a risk off the top of my head, let's say that we are in a manufacturing uh, industry and, and we've got a risk identified there, which is the possibility of a fire breaking out in the warehouse. Let's say okay. So now we now we examine that, or if you will, we do a deep dive. Now we, we do a deep dive into that risk. Um, uh, and, and we look at the causes of that risk and we actually we look at the warehouse and we say, OK, the warehouse is pretty old. Um, it's not fireproof, the material it's made out of. The wiring in the building is particularly ancient and in, and in areas that it's corroded. Um, the, the workers are allowed to, to smoke in there. A lot of our stuff is combustible and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and then you say, OK, well, you know, there's likely uh, factors that could uh, result in a fire in a warehouse and if the fire does happen what, are, what is the outcome of that and you say well we're going to lose all our stock that's all going to go up in smoke um we're going to maybe have to stop production because there's nowhere to store the stuff once we've once we've made it we're going to have to uh, call upon insurance if indeed we are insured with, uh, with that warehouse and what does the insurance cover and we're going to either have to rebuild or move um and so and so the very you know in a very simple terms there's your there's your bow tie, there's your causes and the incident and, the, and there's, the, there's the outcomes. But because it's internal to you, you can influence that. 
you see. So whereas you've got the possibility of fire breaking out as a high risk, you look at each one of those causes and you say, okay, well, we'll stop people from smoking in the warehouse. Done, finished. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll put up um, fire retardant panels all over the, the, the walls and the ceiling of the warehouse. We might even relocate to a new warehouse. Uh, we could rewire, we, you know, rewire all the warehouse and, and, and so on and so forth. If the fire does break out, we could put in a sprinkler system uh, to deal with that. We'll make sure the, the fire extinguishers are distributed everywhere and everybody's trained up in them. And we'll have a hotline to the fire brigade. So you're taking that risk of possibility of fire from the top right of the old matrix there, where it's a high risk. And by influencing, in this case, both the, the likelihood of that event occurring and the impact of, the, of, of that event on the business, you've influenced them both, you've decreased them both, and so the risk rating has come down. Okay, mm -hmm. straightforward, basic, simple risk management. But let's take the same warehouse, and if the, if the risk isn't the possibility of fire, if the risk is the possibility of an earthquake, how are you going to, what actions are you going to take to limit the likelihood of that? There's nothing you can do. If you're on a floodplain and you say the possibility of being flooded, again, there's very little you can do. Um, if there's going to be a terrorist attack on that, an unprecedented terrorist attack on your warehouse, what are you going to do about this? Nothing you can do to alter or influence the likelihood of these events because they're outside of your control. The best that you can do is put up the barriers and prepare for the worst. Um, and that's what we mean by no influence. You cannot deal with these external um, catastrophic, potentially catastrophic events like, you know, like um, uh, tornadoes, like uh, volcanoes, like terrorist attacks, like the market crash or all these external things. You can't deal with those in the same way that you could deal with, for example, a process safety event. On a, on a plant or in a refinery or wherever it may be. They have to be dealt with separately because you cannot influence um, uh, the likelihood uh, uh, of, of these things. Um, so that's, the, that's, your, that's your eye. You've got no influence over the, over the likelihood. And the other thing is, if you just go back briefly to our fire, our fire risk, um, you're never going to, you know, no risks will ever go away. You can never write it off, but you can reduce it from high down to whatever category you've chosen. Um, and some risks, to use a phrase I read about recently, which is, uh, uh, I believe it's becoming more in vogue at the moment. That's another one of these language issues, of course, though, Alex. They're, <laughs> they're, using, they're, using, they're now using the term de minimis. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a new, that no, it's a new language we need to get used to. <laughs> de minimis means you've reduced the risk um, to something so small that you, it's, it's, it's negligible. That's what it means. So you can reduce a risk to de minimis now. So they say, there you go. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> then it is, there you go. So, uh, but, so you're taking a risk that was originally high, now you've re reduced it to uh, extremely low. The problem with the um, IPEC risks is that they're perpetual. They ain't going to go away. You can't reduce them from, from A to B, and they're always, they're always going to be potentially catastrophic. So they're perpetual, and that's your P. The E, the E we've dealt with, they are outside of your remit, outside of your control. If they were within your remit, within your control, you have more, more influence over them, and then they're sort of reduced the risk of the impact on the business. Um, but you don't, they're external, and it's the E. And catastrophic, um, you know, catastrophic, what does that mean? It, well, it, it essentially means the end of your, potentially the end of your business if you haven't got all your... Um, your ducks in a row to use another poor uh, use of language there. If you haven't got everything organized, 
um, your insurance is in place, your contingency plans in place, your crisis management in place, your business continuity plans have been well rehearsed. If you haven't all got, got, got all of that in place, then the results could truly be um, catastrophic. So, um, yeah, you can't influence them. They're perpetual, they're external, and they're perpetually, potentially catastrophic, hence IPEC. Is an example of a perpetual risk something like an earthquake? Is yeah. The kind of thing you're talking about, like there's not we we may have stronger buildings we may have you know evacuation plans or whatever the case may be but there's nothing we can actually do about the earthquake itself is that the, a good example of a perpetual one it's a very good example uh, um, and absolutely illustrates what an IPEC risk is about and, and and what what you've said there you could make you could try an earthquake proof your buildings and do all the rest but what you're doing there is you're just trying to you're trying to manage the impact of the earthquake happening that's what you're doing, and that's my point. You can do that. You can, IPEC risks is all about focusing on the impact and trying to manage and, uh, and, and reduce that impact as much as you possibly can. You can't stop an earthquake from happening. That's the point. Um, mm. But but I, I just I would like to illustrate something else that you've just triggered my my mind, which I think it's important to mention. If we take let's uh, trying to think of um, oh yeah okay if we take if we take volcanoes now as a volcanic eruption. Let's take that as another IPEC type, type risk. Um, would it be reasonable for um, a head office of a multinational, let's say, a head office of a multinational based in London, would it be reasonable for that head office to have earthquake on its, on its, top, on its list of top risks? I, I suspect that most most people would think that, that was bizarre if you're a head office based in London and you're presenting to the board and you, your earth, you know, a volcanic eruption is on there. You may get laughed out of the boardroom. But here's my thing. Um, think Iceland and think 2010. That volcanic eruption by that unpronounceable volcano sent an ash cloud over the northern hemisphere that completely disrupted international um, air freight. Right. So if you are if your if your staff are using aeroplanes to get around to get onto their business, if you're using um, air routes to export products or to import feedstock or whatever it may be, all that lot gets disrupted. And if your head office and you haven't even considered that when that volcano erupts again and that ice cloud, that ash cloud comes over to Europe again and all your air traffic gets disrupted again, more the fool you actually. And if the people in the boardroom are going to laugh you out to, out of the boardroom because of that, I think if you wake them up in the same way that your people in your front row need waking up to the fact that when you're doing your risk assessments and you're considering IPEC risks, you consider the global context and this, I think, is where the reporting of IPEC risks becomes ever so valuable to companies now. If we can get over this foolish, childish um, attitude that, um, you know, some things are just ridiculous and we can actually be sensible and say, look, um, earthquakes have happened and affected people and businesses. Floods have happened. Terrorist attacks have happened. Volcanic eruptions have happened. We are in a global business with a multinational company. We're not just looking in isolation of our, in our office and our area of operations. If you look at the global supply chain, right from getting in feedstock, right to exporting product and everything that goes on in between, and you don't consider that in one of those places that's key to that supply chain, one of these events might happen. And if it does, it could really make your day pretty miserable. If you don't even consider that because it sounds ridiculous, as I say, more the fool you.
Well, you mentioned Iceland uh, and the impact that had. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a year or two after Iceland, um, it happened again in, uh, in Indonesia or Malaysia, somewhere around there, where that whole area, Northern Australia and uh, other places, you know, countries were all impacted the same way. Flights were cut, nobody could do things. A lot of stuff was canceled because um, you couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> it was, you know, couldn't go outside in one place i remember so much ash that they even though they weren't in the same country where it occurred they had to stay inside because so much ash was falling yeah yeah and and, and i, I the, the, the the trouble the sad the sad fact though is that people only take ipec type of risks seriously after they've experienced one so let me illustrate that, and I'm sure this won't come as any surprise. I was facilitating a risk workshop for um, a very large company recently, and it was two years ago, January. Um, I think you've probably guessed what's coming next, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, I at the end of at the end of the risk workshop, um, even though it was in the bucket of risks which I'd given them to play with, it never featured. And I said to them, "Have you never considered the issue of a pandemic?" and the impact that that might have. And the answer, this is the senior management senior management team, the answer unanimously and confidently came back, said, look, we've never, we've never had a pandemic here. And even if, even if we have one, uh, we're so well equipped to deal with things that really, I think the impact would be minimal. That company lost billions. Um, you know, pandemic is right up there with your IPEG risks as, 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 as well. Look at the impact this one's had. I mean, how many interesting, Alex, I don't know, but we can't do it now, and nobody would admit it anyway. But wouldn't it be interesting to look at all the top companies, top risk registers, you know, a board level, um, three years ago, and ask yourself how many of those considered pandemic, and look at the top risk registers now, and see how many are considering pandemic or the effects of a future pandemic or a future mutation. Um, and, and so on. It's vastly different. And as I say, it's a sad thing that it takes people to get hurt really badly before they start taking things seriously. And what's even sadder, actually, is that those people that, that have the vision, those people that have the vision to say, um, this could happen, and if it does, we'll be in a bad state, are very often just written off and, and, and um, uh, not taken seriously at all. And what that does, it creates a climate of fear, fear of ridicule, fear of losing your job for speaking up, and people don't speak up. So the only thing that's left, if you're not going to take that seriously, the only thing that's left um, uh, is to wait for it to happen. And that's the only way you're going to learn. Terrorism, you know, people, terrorism's a great IPEC risk because it, it, it completely, I mean, the whole point of terrorism is to create as much um, horror and shock and get as much publicity as, as possible for killing, you know, as many um, um, innocent people um, as possible. It's the most shocking thing, you know, it's one of the most, if not the most shocking characteristic of humanity that we, we are prepared to do that. But you mentioned a terrorist attack in some companies' risk registers. Uh, it's almost taboo. You can't even talk about it. You know? Why not? I think we should be talking about terrorism. We should be talking about pandemic. We should be talking about volcanic eruption. We should be talking uh, about earthquake, about mudslides, about um, locust swarms in Malaysia, um, uh, and all the other things that have affected the global businesses. We should be talking about an awful lot more. And here's the thing, Alex, as soon as you start talking about these things a lot more, the more familiar you become talking about them, 
um, and the more comfortable then you become, they no longer become some alien thing that's just, you know, is taboo. You, you, you become comfortable talking about them. And as soon as you're able to do that, the sooner you're able to start actually taking them seriously and doing some scenario planning behind those and getting your crisis management, your business continuity plans developed. Now, uh, just to uh, add a point to something you said, you know, a lot of companies probably didn't have pandemic on their risk registry or even in their minds anywhere. Um, I was lucky enough to work for a company that did uh, way back when because we were impacted by SARS. We had to split our staff. We even had a couple of staff members who contracted SARS and were isolated and things. So um, we had a pandemic plan and I, I, I'm sure they probably did quite well you know, um, when the pandemic hit, because we took a lot of lessons learned from what we went through with SARS. So fingers crossed, uh, everything went well for them. But you're right, a lot of people still thought that ah, that's never going to happen. That was 100 years ago. We've learned so much that that would never happen here. Well, here we are almost two years later. <laughs> that's it. There we are. And there's one, there's one, um, uh, there's one issue though, Alex, I think I should, I think I should um, clarify if I have, if I've got the time to do so. And that is, I imagine a lot of your listeners out there now, especially the ones involved in risk management, business continuity management, a lot of your listeners are saying, this is nothing new. We know this already. This is this is black swan events. This is what he's talking about. He's not identifying anything new. It's black swan events. Or these are just business continuity risks. I, I, I want to deal with both of those things just to clear up the difference between an IPEC risk and a black swan risk and a, and a, and a so-called business continuity risk. To me, I mean, I'm, I'm, um, my understanding of a black swan event is one that is characterized by its unpredictability, right? Um, and um, it, it, this may not be the intent of, you know, the, the great man himself, Nassim Taleb, but it's my, it's, my understanding, it's my understanding, and I'm just putting it out there so that people can see my point of view and maybe they want to, it'll make things clearer for them about why these two things are different. And if I could illustrate, if I could illustrate the difference between the two by telling a rather childish um, um, story, uh, if you can imagine back in, in prehistoric times, Alex, and you're a lizard, let's say, you're a small kind of lizard. <laughs> Back in prehistoric times, and you're around the sort of campfire with your fellow lizards, and you're doing a sort of risk, uh, a risk brainstorming session, and and you, 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 you have the risk, the possibility that we're all we're going to get eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex, or you know, the risk that we won't be able to find any food today or tomorrow or the next day or the next day, whatever it may be, and you, and you, you, you all, you all, uh, you all uh, have a bit of an input to, to that, trying to get your risk, your risk list. Uh, together what you don't have on that list is that the mountain next to you where you've lived and grown up and everything is suddenly going to um, explode and, and spew out uh, fire and lava and burn every, everything and destroy everything you know within within a certain radius and also you don't have that you know something five kilometers wide is going to fall out of the sky and smash into the earth and cause a huge dust cloud, which is going to block out the sun and therefore kill everything off. You don't have those into your risk because they're inconceivable. They've never happened before. Nobody would in a million years come up with those two things as risk because they're just completely bizarre. Um, they're unprecedented. You wouldn't think that thing, that thing, and then of course, the volcanoes erupt and the meteor smashes into it and they've happened. The point is they've happened. So once they've happened, they're no longer inconceivable. 
they have happened in the past. So when you talk about meteors crashing into the earth and volcanoes and everything else that we've mentioned on IPEC risk, the reason we're concerned about them is because there is a history that proves that these things can be realized. They're no longer inconceivable. So that you and your fellow lizards around there were quite right not to think about meteors smashing into the earth or volcanoes, but not, because it's never been imagined. It was beyond the imagination. But now that it's happened, it's well within the, um, the purview of our imagination. And, and therefore, if there is a history of these things happening and if they can have such catastrophic effects, should we not be considering them? So to summarize, my view, and again, I, I, it's, it is only my view, but I believe the distinction between an IPEC risk and a black swan event is that an IPEC risk is a black swan event that's already happened. That's the difference. Black swan events are entirely unpredictable. You don't know what they are, where they're going to come from. So the little lizards around there are facing black swan events. The events happen, now they're IPEC risks. Just quickly on the business continuity. Business continuity is not a risk. Business continuity is an objective, and that's all I've got to say on the matter. It irritates me that when people say, oh, these are business continuity risks. No, they're not. Business continuity is an objective. Business discontinuity is a risk, but business continuity is not a risk, and that's all I'm saying on that one. <laughs> on that one. Send all the emails to Tony on that one. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking with Tony Thornton today on the topic of managing external risks, and we'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Tony Thornton on the topic of managing external risks. Tony, lots of great information there, um, and uh, I like the the talk you had there with the lizards around the fire, you know, and the black swans. I, I, I completely relate and understand that. Um, but you also mentioned a little earlier um, the word of likelihood. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, is likelihood a good metric to measure risks with? 
What are your thoughts? Um, uh, I think, I think with I, with I, with iPad risks, uh, um, um, it's 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 not. But before I go to the reasons, uh, if I may, Alex, just to take a minute to distinguish between likelihood and probability, because the two are very distinct, and one is I think useful, and the other one I think has limited use. The useful one, of course, is probability. Now, for those listeners that aren't completely clear, to my to my mind, probability is a statistical mathematical concept um, that works on the uncertainty of occurrences. So when you talk about probability, you'll never get an exact figure. You should always use a range because of all that uncertainty. So the uncertainty uh, also has attached to it degrees of confidence. So you can say with a certain degree of confidence, that is a certain range of probability of the occurrence of an event within a given time frame. That 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 probability metric that can be modelled and it can be tested in different scenarios that they call stress testing. And I think in that um, in that case of probability, there is a huge huge amount of value to be gained by including those probability studies in a detailed risk a detailed assessment of of, of our risk given that probability is an inexact science, it deals with uncertainty, but it, nevertheless, the tools, the, you know, the, what you can do with your decision trees and your Monte Carlos and everything else um, do have a very valuable place in, in the detailed risk, risk, risk assessment. That's as opposed to likelihood. To me, likelihood um, is a very qualitative concept there's no measurement around it as such and it depends depends very much on the individual's own um assumptions and understandings of how likely something is you know if we say how likely is it to rain tomorrow and i say i don't think it's likely at all and you say i think it's pretty likely where are we now we haven't really achieved anything except for disagreement and if you compromise on that you get in the middle you're 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 both um you know you're you're reporting something that was never in the discussion so um, likelihood, to, in order to get around the, the problem with likelihood, uh, this people you, uh, invented uh, scales. And the most simple scale of likelihood, of course, is high, medium, low, you know, high likelihood, medium likelihood. Low. But you've got to define those. If you're going to say that something is of high likelihood, what, is, what do you mean by that? And what distinguishes that high likelihood event from a medium likelihood event? The barrier is the, the the boundary between the two is a very much a grey area, and so I guess somewhere along the line, some genius has got together and said, "Oh, we'll get around this problem by expanding that, expanding that to make it a bit more clear." So now we have the five point classic, you know, highly unlikely, unlikely, likely, very likely, almost certain. Well, that's a you know, well that's terrible English already, isn't it? Or almost. Uh, <laughs> It's almost certain. Anyway, but, never, but the, the point the, the point is, you all you've done there is expounded the, 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 the problem. I was listening to on the radio, there was a group of philosophers and they were talking about something called the paradox of boundaries. And they use a great analogy, uh, which I'm going to steal from them because it was so uh, graphic and it, it just explained everything so clearly. Um, you take the state of a man that's got um, a head of hair and, and, then, and then you start picking the hairs one by one out of that man's head, right? So there are two states. There is not bald and there is bald. At which point is the man bald? 
which hair, when you picked it, turned that man's state in from being not bald to bald? You can't answer that question. It's a philosophical problem. When does the man become bald? Um, and it's the same as the problem of, of, of the likelihood scale. You cannot, you cannot define those boundaries between these ridiculous buckets of, you know, highly unlikely, unlikely, likely. And therefore, the whole scale is invalid. So um, for, for me, um, the, the likelihood scale, particularly with IPET risks, doesn't work, which is why we just accept the events that happen and you need to worry about likelihood. Just very quickly on likelihood, to get around it again, there's another scale that people used, hasn't happened in the last 20 years, hasn't happened in the last 10 years, hasn't happened in the last five. Well, this is even more ridiculous than the last scale, I think, because, because the scale engulfs itself. If you pick the, the one that says hasn't happened in the last 20 years, well, by definition, that includes the scale that says hasn't happened in the last 10 years, hasn't happened in the last five years, and so on and so forth. So it completely destroys itself, that scale. Uh, and also, I could go on about this, but also if you're looking in the past to events that have really happened, is it right intellectually or academically to use that data to try and assess events in the future which haven't yet happened? So likelihood scales and the various the various um, applications and the various scales that have come, they don't, they don't do it for me, and certainly not with, um, certainly not with IPEC type risks. So the short answer is no, I don't like likelihood. <laughs> Believe it or not, we only have uh, less than four minutes left. So, um, quick question: How do you suggest managing IPEC risks? Risks. Yeah, uh, uh, four minutes left. Okay. Um, I, I suggest an A, B, C, D, E approach. A, first of all, you accept they're going to happen. You don't waste time worrying about the likelihood of them happen. We've been over this already, Alex. So I, I, I think that's your A. You accept that they're going to happen. Um, the B is that once you accept they can happen, you get together and you brainstorm. You get the right people in the room and you brainstorm. Nothing is ridiculous, remember? Everybody's got a valuable input and nothing should be dismissed um, too easily. And you brainstorm in your, in your local area uh, and as much as you can in your, the wider supply chain, global business about where those IPET risks are. And if every business unit in your organization did that and you all collaborated and got together and consolidated that risk, what a rich data source that would be. Even richer if you collaborated and consolidated that with other companies in the same areas that have done the same thing. So that's the second thing, you, 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 uh, you, you brainstorm. And, and, and collaborate, so that's a C. So you accept the risks, you brainstorm the risks, and you collaborate and consolidate the risks. And now we get to the D, which is the, the document risk. Now, this is, this is important uh, because this is where it's going to get different to traditional risks. So with traditional risks, um, the, 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 the documentation of the risk takes, takes the risk from what is the likelihood of this risk event? Well, first of all, what's the risk event? What's the likelihood of the event that's going to happen? What's the impact of that event? Uh, should it happen? Therefore, what's the assessment of that event? Therefore, what controls do we need to put in place? Therefore, what risk action plan do we have to mitigate that risk further? You know, at the beginning, we talked about influencing risk. This is the influence part. What mitigation measures, what risk action plans can we develop to mitigate that risk? So key here, risk action plans to mitigate risk. That's tradition, and that covers strategy operations, financial reporting, compliance, all the usual, um, you know, the COSO, the, the, the usual um, risk categories there. IPEC risks 
you do the ABC, which we've just talked about, you document those risks, right? But you don't just make, you don't, as you do with other risks, you list them in a risk register. What you do is you make a list of them down, let's say the Y axis. We're going to talk about a three-dimensional axis. And one minute, okay. And then across, across the X axis, you have your risk categories. I'm going to rush into pairs because everybody's heard of that. People, environment, assets, reputation, stakeholders. And the Z axis is time. So you do assessments over all these IPEC risks against your risk categories and your time. And then you exercise your, uh, your scenario plan and you exercise, 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 exercise. And on that, we've come to the end of our show. Tony, great talking with you. Um, uh, not that I did a lot. You know, um, I know before we started, you said you hadn't done this type of thing before, but you know, once you got going, you know, obviously you've got passion in this and it shows. <laughs> so yeah. thank you so much for sharing your expertise and time. I really greatly appreciate it. I, I think I, this is uh, really interesting. I like this uh, IPEC risk. And uh, we'll probably uh, look into it a little bit more. So thank you very much. Uh, and for joining us from Abu Dhabi today. Well, thank you, Alex. I've enjoyed our, our, our conversation immensely. I just hope that IPEC risks now, the concept of IPEC risks now catches on and people, and people get far more confident in the talking about them so that we can be better prepared for them in the future. Well, great. Thank you once again. Have a great day. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.